Welcome back to the Line to Gain podcast. This is going to be episode five, the 1970s. My name is Jeremy Dixon here as always with uh, Mike Parker. Mike, how's it going, man? It's going great. Glad to be here today. Heck yeah, me too. Me too. I'm, I'm excited about the, the 70s. It was fun. Uh, you know, the, the game changes so much in the 70s. So many rule changes. So many... Uh, you know, exciting teams kind of coming out of nowhere. and Yeah, absolutely. We called this episode um, like New Kids on the Block uh, because of the AFL basically transi- transitioning into the a- uh, AFC. And it was a bit of a transitional decade for a lot of reasons. So you have two leagues combining at the end of the 1960s, and then you have this transitional period of the 70s, and then NFL takes off uh, in the 80s, offenses go crazy, and it kind of looks more like the game that we see today. Right. Right. No, that's, uh, yeah, it's, it's exciting. So I'm I'm, I'm I'm anxious to get into it. I know we have some stat guy stuff to, yeah, to as lead always, off here. As always, we have to start the show with um, all of the things that I said wrong from the See, previous episode. See, it's funny to me. Like, I, I don't, I mean, I'm not saying I cut all the stuff I say wrong out of the podcast when I'm mm-hmm. editing, but stat guy is really hard on you, man. Yeah, <laughs> um, it's just a thing we have, I guess. So I think we broke it up into like two separate kind of categories this time. So that's like the confirmation or clarification, things that we weren't sure about last right. last week, and then a, an absolute correction, something I just got wrong okay. or, or that we got wrong. Yeah. So um, why don't you kick us off with the uh, first yeah. uh, clarification? So Alex Karras was inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame as one of the 10 senior picks for the centennial class of 2020 to celebrate the 100 years of the NFL, which is, that's cool. Yeah, I had no idea he was in the Hall of Fame, so that's that's interesting. Even though he bet on sport, uh, bet on football or got suspended for, for betting, that's... Yeah, maybe maybe the Major League Baseball should look at Pete yeah. Rose again, you let, know. Let just, Pete in, man, yeah. come on. Maybe Alex was a little bit less of a pain in the ass than Or maybe Pete he wasn't Rose. betting on his own team. Uh, no, that he was. That's why he was suspended. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So if he wouldn't, have, I wonder if he wouldn't have been betting on his own team if they would have probably looked the other way, maybe. It seems to me that the NFL likes to make or has liked to make um, statements with some of their things. So, you know, Alex and Paul Horning maybe have not been the most, um, the, the ones that did the most gambling mm-hmm. or gambled on their teams, but right. they needed to make a statement. Yeah. So I think okay. could be they were the statement. It could be they actually did the worst thing. Um, I mean, at this point, it, it really doesn't matter. Right. Both of those guys are in the Hall of Fame. And uh, yeah, we've free, confirmed. Free Pete Rose. <laughs> free Pete Rose. Yeah, so the other thing was, is we were really unclear about whether John Brody got paid at all. So... Unlike Mike Ditka, who actually signed with the Houston Oilers, um, was allowed to keep his $50,000 signing bonus when the merger was announced and he went back to the Bears. This never happened with Brody. So Brody, apparently on the table, was about a $650,000 to $1 million contract. No one really knows the exact amount. Right. I know we, uh, we discussed that. They yeah. kind of say $1 million, but it was like, okay, well, they, we, they, we don't know yeah, exactly. Yeah, they, they didn't put the range when right. we did our initial research. It was just like this high amount. Um, but apparently he... Um, worked with San Francisco 49ers and, and signed a contract for 900K. So okay. we were able to confirm that. So we had a couple of questions about how the 
draft order for the 1967 draft, which was the first combined draft for the two leagues. So if you don't remember from the last episode, 1967, the NFL and the AFL kind of basically took their teams and shuffled them into uh, one draft. And they right. instead of trying to like poach or draft the same players, they just went ahead into the common draft. And, you know, from that point forward, Right, and we, we were, I was confused how Miami or the first AFL team didn't draft until fourth. Right, so. and so Stat Guy um, sat down for a couple of hours, maybe an hour, I don't know, and, and figured this out. So it's pretty simple. Um, there was an expansion team um, for the 1967 season, and they were able to get the first pick. That was the New Orleans Saints. They traded the pick to the Baltimore Colts, Bar- Baltimore uh, selected Bubba Smith, as we had mentioned before, defensive tackle from Michigan State. The Giants had the worst record in the league, in either league, at 112 and 1. Uh, they traded their pick to the Minnesota Vikings, who took Clint Jones running back from Michigan State. We're only going to go through the five picks here. I'm not going to do the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, the next three teams both finished with uh, three wins and 11 losses. Um, the Falcons. Um, because they scored the least amount of points of those three. It was like 204 points for the entire season, got the three slot, and they traded their pick to San Francisco, who selected uh, Steve Spurrier, quarterback of Florida, also a Heisman Trophy winner. Didn't do much um, from a pro football perspective, but we, we know him as kind of the coach of Florida. Yeah, like TV and, Whisper. Yeah, and I guess South Carolina and uh, the Washington football team for a period of time. Right. Um, that... Fourth pick went to the Miami Dolphins, the first AFL team to actually pick in the draft. Um, They had about 214 points um, scored that year. They picked Bob Greasy, uh, former – he will become a Hall of Famer. Well, he became a Hall of Famer. And then finally, uh, the Houston Oilers, they had like 330-some-odd points, and they picked fifth and got George Webster, uh, linebacker to Michigan State. Now, a little anecdote. Or side note here, as I'm pulling these selections, it just seemed like a lot of Michigan State players. And I'm like, was this team good in 1966? Like, where did they where did they come from? Right. So I kind of dug into it a little bit. And there were four Michigan State players drafted in the first round. We heard three of them. Um, and in, in the entire draft, there were eight total. So apparently they were pretty good. Um, they were uh, co-national champions with Notre Dame and their record was 9-0-1. The final game was against the aforementioned Fighting Irish. It ended in a 10-10 tie, and uh, I guess considered one of the greatest games in college history, at least at the time. So I thought that was pretty interesting. Yeah, yeah, that is. And also, uh, another thing Stat Guy was able to clarify for us was that Peyton Manning did not wear the black never wore the Johnny Unitas shoes yeah. in, in honor of Johnny Unitas. He wanted to, he requested it, the NBA or the NBA the NFL said no. So apparently it goes a little bit, it went a little bit differently. So um, apparently Johnny Unitas, well, J- Johnny Unitas had just passed. Right. And Peyton Manning wanted to honor him um, in some way. And he wanted to wear the black high top shoes that Johnny Unitas was famous for. Um, so I, apparently Johnny Unitas did not, um, after the, the Colts moved to Indianapolis, he had a problem with that and he kind of, um, moved away from involvement in the, in the franchise. And, gotcha. um, so Peyton reaches out to the Unitas family 
and says, hey, this is what I'd like to do to honor him. You know, is that okay? And so the family's like, yes, that would be great. Thank you so much for doing that. It's a great honor for you to do that. The NFL gets wind of it, basically, and says, goes to Peyton, like, you can't. It'll be, it'll be a large fine, thousands of dollars if you wear those shoes. So Peyton, um, I think rightfully so. Let's not make the moment about the fine in the shoes. We're trying to honor, you know, a person or a player that he had great respect for. Let's just leave it at that. I think it was a good decision. Um, and they never wore the shoes. Yeah, so now the entire Unitas family hates the Colts, probably. So I'm just kidding. But <laughs> Maybe. still, I mean, that, yeah, I mean, the, you, you know, you wonder why they, they call it the No Fun League. Yeah, you know, the irony of this is I don't think it was too much longer that, you know, the NFL is just like, yeah, wear whatever color shoes you want. It well, doesn't matter. Well, until Marshawn Lynch wanted to wear his Skittle, uh, Skittles cleats a few years ago, and they told him that, they would uh, kick him out of the game if he did or something? Well, there is actually a rule that they made where you can't have, like, corporation or other branding oh, on your shoes. Then. Okay. They can do nonprofit things on their shoes. Sure. You know, they can have the custom shoes, you know, for the nonprofits. Pink one, yeah, the pink ones for, like, but, breast cancer awareness right. month and things like that. Yeah. And if they are, like... Like Mahomes is uh, with Adidas, right? So he mm -hmm. wears Adidas shoes. He's allowed to do that. Not everything has to be Nike, for example, right. which is the official sponsor for the NFL. But you can't have like um, a patch on your shoe that's like State Farm or something like that. Yeah. They don't want that as part of it. Gotcha. All right. Well, let's uh, move on to corrections from episode four, Mike. Uh, I know Stat Guy found uh -huh. Dallas Texans moved to Kansas City, not St. Louis, yeah. which was uh, stated during the winners and losers section, and, I, and that totally slipped by me in the editing uh, in the editing bay. So I, I take take some responsibility for that as well. I need to slow down. That's what it tells me. <laughs> and, you know, I knew that, and I think just got caught up in the moment. Yes. Yeah, so to no confirm, worries. the Dallas Texans became the Kansas City Chiefs. It always is weird for me to have at least at the time, like two football teams in Missouri. Yeah. Like Missouri? Right. Of all places. Yeah. Like what, yeah. It, it was very odd. Very that, odd. That is strange. Got up good on them, though, I guess. Yeah, no doubt. All right. So another kind of overshoot was I had thought that the 16-game season started like mid-1960s. Um, it did not, in fact. Uh, they stayed 14 games until 1977, and then the 1978 uh, season was the first to play 16 games. Right. Okay. I didn't read that, and I I also have that in my uh, my notes for later. So, <laughs> <laughs> did not realizing that we said that it, they moved to 16. Attention to in detail. The last one, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we discussed the relevancy of the Miami Dolphins during the 80s. It was like a sidebar. We we're talking about like these teams that kind of flashed a bit, yeah. and, but didn't kind of, you know, get a championship. Yeah, and so yeah, and we mentioned their 1985 season, going 12 and four, beating the Chicago Bears, who were 15 and one, and the Super Bowl champions, Super Bowl shuffle, all that good stuff. Right. Uh, they beat them during the regular season and losing to the New England Patriots in the AFC Championship game. Yeah, they're the only team to beat that defense. Basically, Marino just torched them. Right. And apparently it became a, a matchup issue because um, 
New England just matched up better against them, and they beat them pretty handily in that uh, AFC Championship game. I think the thing that I forgot to mention during that little conversation was the previous year, 1984 season, they went 14-2. and Marino throws for over 5,000 yards, first player to do that. And they make the Super Bowl, Super Bowl 19, uh, losing to the 49ers, 38-16. to So I probably should have added that to the whole thing. Yeah, no, it's all, that's good, man. That's good. We're, uh, all right. So I now we he's got a stickler. That stack guy is a stickler. <sighs> Tell me about it. God. Tell me about it. He won't, he won't, he, he listens to the show like two or three times and then like takes notes. Yeah. Of all the things that we messed up. I know, man. And it's a pain in the yeah. freaking guy. <laughs> all right. So the, uh, just to refresh everyone on our dynasty by decade rules, uh, you must make the playoffs in a given year to earn points. To be the dynasty of the decade, you must win at least one championship or Super Bowl. And teams will earn points based on how far they made it in the playoffs. So one point for a playoff berth, uh, two for a conference loss, three conference win, four for a Super Bowl loss, five for a Super Bowl win. Uh, And the, the team that wins the Super Bowl in a given year collects nine total points. And that's how we determine our our uh, team of the decade. Yep, that is how we do it. But before we get to that, we have to get into the categories. Absolutely. So this just in, Mike, take it away. Yeah, our first category here. Uh, just a couple little quick facts that I thought were interesting. Uh, the first pick of the 1970 draft to usher in the, 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 new, the next decade for the NFL, the Pittsburgh Steelers selected Terry Paxton Bradshaw, uh, also known as the Blonde Bomber, out of Louisiana Tech. First pick. That's so funny. I've never heard him called the Blonde Bomber before. I think he called himself that, maybe. (laughs) That's great, man. Uh, Yeah, so September 21st, 1970, is the first time ABC televised a game of Monday Night Football. Uh, The game was between the Jets and the Browns, and the Browns won that game 31-21. Dun-dun-dun-dun. There it is. Um, So on November 8th, this is something that they always talked about every time somebody would line up for uh, a long field goal. Um, New Orleans Saints kicker Tom Demp- Dempsey, he had that uh, like club foot boxed shoe. Right, I remember um, that. Kicks a 63-yard field goal, a record that held for 43 years until Matt Prater, the Denver Broncos, um, would kick a 64-yard f- field goal in 2013. All right, and uh, yeah, I think our guy... Tim Tebow was uh, the beneficiary of that W. On, and, and, uh, and many other field goals yeah, from Pat, Matt Prater. Exactly. Matt Prater was his guy. Yeah. Uh, so I had, uh, and, and these aren't necessarily in chronological order, so I had November 19th, 1978 was the miracle at the Meadowlands, mm. which uh, the Giants were trying to run the clock out, up by five points, fumble the handoff, and Herm Edwards of the Eagles, who we all know from probably ESPN and, and being a coach now at Arizona State University, scooped the ball up and ran it back uh, for a touchdown and the Eagles win. And that one fumbled handoff prompted the, the NFL to go to the victory formation. And that's kind of where that came from. They figured out a way to kind of prevent any chance of a fumble if there is a fumble there's three guys back there behind the quarterback to to if there's a, a handoff or yeah they have a deep a deeper uh, running back yeah back. if there's any yeah. problem with the exchange there's three guys back there to to jump on the ball 
and uh, yeah, so that that uh, I thought that was kind of significant from the from the seventies. Yeah, so the seventies brought us a lot of firsts um, as things start to open up in these teams. So let's say you take fourteen, you know, teams, right? You have a certain amount of players coming out of college. If you expand that out to now twenty eight teams, that talent pool begins to. Um, you need more talent to get in there. So it right. thins it a little bit. There's always this adjustment when these teams kind of expand. So we had a major expansion in the 70s. So I think that is a big uh, driver to some of these firsts. So, for example, the 1972 Miami Dolphins became the first, and even to this day, the only team to go undefeated during the regular season and win a Super Bowl. I have a feeling that that record, I was thinking about it earlier today when I was you know, getting ready for this podcast that there's just there's so much parody now and i mean just look at this last weekend of uh nfl football i mean the road teams won like nine out of the 15 games or whatever and not i mean it, there were so many upsets it was just it was wild like there there's so much parody i just don't feel like there's any chance that a team can go undefeated anymore and i know the patriots made it to the super bowl and got knocked off by who everyone thought was a an inferior New York Giants team, right? So Yeah. I mean, I think you're right. And it, you know, to quote Mike Tomlin, never say never. Right. But never. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with you. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I it, it makes me think I I guess it could happen cuz you know, in the NCAA basketball term, you think 16, that's the one rule like never pick a 16 seed to beat a 1 seed, but you know, because it's never happened, but eventually it, ha- it finally happened a few years ago. And, right. You know, now it's the same thing, man. There's just so much parody, so much talent out there that, um, you know, teams, yeah, you catch you, any given Sunday. Yeah, exactly. So keeping in line with our theme um, of first time things that happened or records, uh, 1973 marked the first time a player rushed for over 2,000 yards in a season. It was O.J. Simpson. Uh, this was a 14-game season. Um, he, I believe, was the only one to run for 2,000 yards in a 14-game season. I think you're right about Pretty that. Pretty spectacular. But sure, guy will let us know if we're wrong. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, kind of along those lines, I know um, I read that in the 1972 season produced more 1,000-yard rushers and more rushing yards than any season prior to that. And which is was strange for me to hear because you know they were going into more passing at that time you know like they'd been rushing the ball for all of the nfl history up to that point you know we we always talk about the three yards in a cloud of dust right um you know the running was the was the key fundamental of of pro football at that time and um this was the first year that yeah this was the the year with the most rushing yards even though they were moving more to a pass happy kind of uh, and we'll see why later on in the show, like why the 70s became why after the 70s, uh, there was an explosion in passing offense. Right. But to your point, the magic numbers for your quarterback, 3000 yards passing for r- rushing and receiving, it was a thousand yards a season. Right. That was the line to gain to get to line to gain <laughs> to the, the amount to get to to consider it um, a, a great season. Right. So it's uh, for 14 games, uh, it's like 85 yards a, a game. And if you 
kind of take that calculation and apply it to now, we got to get to like 1,200, 1,300 yards to have that same, you know, but I still think of that 3,000, you know, one thousand, well, maybe 4,000 for, for yeah. quarterbacks now, but man, 1,500 yards, you get a 1,500 yard season nowadays from a rusher. Oh, man. I mean, yeah, that's it's pretty, yeah. it's pretty good. Absolutely. So one of the things that kind of the NFL's hand, uh, hand was forced in a lot of ways. They wanted to protect the um, home audience or the home market. Um, so one of the things that they had implemented was this blackout rule. God. You remember we, that? Oh, do I remember? Like we're we're Seattle. We, ra- we fans, rarely man. sold out back we, in the '90s, yeah. and we rarely were able to watch games. Yeah, which is crazy. Like so, yeah. Like the rule is if your if your home game doesn't sell out, they don't. They black the game out in your local market. So back then, that was the compromise. Back then, they blacked out the home market if it was a home game. Okay. And you you know who was mad? Who? Richard Nixon. He's like, he can't watch his uh, football team. Oh. (laughs) So I, I don't know. I don't know how it got to the attorney general. I can only assume. But the attorney general approaches Pete Rozelle and says, you know, can you kind of change this rule this doesn't make any sense so Roselle's like no nah, we're not going to do that and the ag kind of responds like wow i might we might want to start looking into your your antitrust situation <laughs> and see how that goes so this is of course this really abridged version of what happened but um eventually Roselle and the nfl decided that you know we'll blackout if it's not a a sellout if it's a sellout then the fans have done what they needed to do to support the team and then the rest of us could enjoy that's crazy to me that they would just black the home games out regardless it's bonkers yeah crazy um so the next big thing and i think this is kind of what that the line of demarcation we've been talking about um 1977 season marked the end of what they called the dead ball era um, the average score per team uh, dropped to 17.2, um, which was historically low. So the NFL would make some significant changes starting in the 1978 season to kind of highlight the offense. Yeah, that's uh, that's I mean, that's definitely important moving forward for sure. Uh, you know, December 23rd, 1972 was the Immaculate Reception, one of the most historic plays you know you see it on all the old highlight films um well you see him reaching down but you don't see anything right yeah it's it's questionable you don't see the ball in fact it actually hit another player and so it was double touched and it's well it's which player did it hit is the and i have more on that later okay so the yeah so the immaculate reception happened december 23rd 1972 oakland leading pittsburgh seven to six with less than 30 seconds to play and no timeouts Terry Bradshaw throws a pass that ricocheted off of someone, we're not sure who, to, to Franco Harris, uh, who took the catch the distance, and Pittsburgh won the game 13-7. to Yeah, there was also a clip on a, on a player yeah. that was trying to tackle Franco Harris at the time as a linebacker, yeah. I believe. I'm not sure who it was. Yeah, I have a hot take about the Steelers in a little bit here. It's well outlined in the 30 for 30 Al Davis versus the NFL. It's a great watch. I did mm-hmm. re-watch it um, recently in preparation for this episode and the episode in the 80s. It yeah. really kind of um, spans that entire... It's 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 really interesting, kind of the... 
it talks that we brought this up, I think, last episode, just with that quote unquote wartime commissioner that Al Davis was right. starting the 1966 season leading into the merger agreement uh, with the NFL and how contentious that was. It really started there and it continued on well into the 80s. So it's a long time to kind of be bickering back and forth. Absolutely. So um, one of the other things that we noticed is with the introduction of the 16 game schedule that started in 1978, um, the NFL started rotating through conferences. So it's a version of what we see now. So this, well, I guess this is the 16 game schedule that I remember. I don't know how they determine that extra game yet in the 17th game. Um, I guess I'll have to uh, talk to stat guy about that. that But in, let's say last year, you would play um, each person in your division twice. You'd play one entire uh, AFC conference that rotates every four years. Right. And then one entire NFC conference, uh, or NFC division, rather, and that rotates every three years. And then for the other two games, whatever place that you finished in your division, let's say you finished second, you would play the second um, place, place team, team in, in each of the other divisions. You're not playing the whole right. one. If that makes any sense, I hope it does. Hope it so does. it's a it's a nice little formula to, to make sure that you're mixing things up and you're having good matchups and you're not playing the same teams, but you still have that regional uh, competition like the Rams and the Seahawks and you know Absolutely. Uh, the 49ers and the, and the um, Cardinals. So Yep, yep. So... Uh... 1974, Mike, Pittsburgh Steelers have the best draft class in NFL history. Lynn Swan in the first round. Jack Lambert in the second round. Linebacker, right. No third round pick. John Stallworth in the fourth round. And Mike Webster in the fifth round. All four Hall of Famers. It's, I mean, arguably the best draft class in NFL history for one team or yeah no i'm saying yeah i'm saying for one team it's for one team's draft class in one year four hall of famers in one year yeah so i remember we brought this up about the colts like over the course of about four or five drafts kind of creating a championship team um the the pittsburgh steelers did that as well Uh, basically starting with mean joe green Adding, that was in 69. Yeah, and then, and then adding Terry Bradshaw and then adding all of these other different components right. that, you know, gave them, you know, back-to-back championships, uh, Super Bowl championships twice yeah. within that decade, so four total. Right. And we'll get to uh, breaking that down a little bit later. Yeah. So 1978, um, they also expanded um, in playoff teams. So each conference would have five playoff teams, um, two wild cards, and three divisional champs in each conference, um, adding a wild card round to the division, the existing divisional and conference rounds. That yeah, that's very significant just to expand the playoffs like that, and you know, open more markets up to enjoying playoff football, all that sort of stuff. So. Yeah, it's important. It's important for a team to have that badge, right? So I think you always hear this. They want to win their division, right? And then they want to get the uh, first round by, and they want to get to the Super Bowl, and then they want to win the Super Bowl. Those are some some 
goals that teams would put on their um, on their bulletin board, board on yeah, their bulletin board exactly. you know before they start the season so just getting into the playoffs has that opportunity um, right. to do that so um, I texted you earlier today Mike and I was like what are the three teams that switch from the AFL or from the NFL to the AFL to make up the AFC uh, AFC conference and the reason I did that is because I heard a stat that the AFC won eight of the first ten of the in the 1970s. The AFC won eight of the ten mm-hmm. Super Bowls, except for Dallas winning the two. And then I go back and look, and it's Pittsburgh. <laughs> Pittsburgh wins a bunch, Four. and the Colts win one. So really, you're you know you're looking at like eight of the ten were actually won by old NFL teams instead. But I thought it was – I mean, it's good that the AFC was was in there doing some work too, you know. So um, even though they, they was, it was old NFL teams, I guess. Yeah, like, I mean, the Pittsburgh Steelers weren't that competitive at the time. I mean, I'm not sure. They might have just hit the right, you know, right GM, mm-hmm. right coach, right players being available. Um, I mean, that's how it works sometimes, and they are able to – put that together for a decade plus so um yeah yeah it's it's a technicality for sure being that the afc dominated the the 70s but you know to the letter of the law they did they won eight of 10 super bowls from 1970 to 1979 facts absolutely all right anything else for the this just in category from you All right. We're on to the teams. Let's talk about the teams. So what we do here is we just kind of briefly go over over the the conference structures, division structures, and any team movement, expansion, or um, yeah. And then who starts the yeah? We'll, we'll, we'll so we'll give you the overview of the start of the decade and then the end of the decade. Yep. That's it. All right, so 26 teams to start the 1970s. This is the AFL and the NFL combining. We have the American Football Conference now made mostly up of the original AFL teams. The East is the Baltimore Colts, Miami Dolphins, New York Jets, Buffalo Bills, and at the time, Boston Patriots. In the Central Division, you have the Bengals, Browns, Steelers, and Houston Oilers. And in the AFC West, you have the Raiders, Chiefs, Chargers, and Broncos. So for the National Football Conference, um, Jeremy, what do we have? Uh, so the NFC East is the Cowboys, Giants, St. Louis Cardinals, and Philadelphia Eagles. Oh, and Washington football team. Excuse me. Uh, NFC Central, we have the Minnesota Vikings, Chicago Bears, Green Bay Packers, Detroit Lions. And then the NFC West is the 49ers. L.A. Rams, Atlanta Falcons, and New Orleans Saints. Yes, yes. So some of the things that happen, transactions that happen, name changes, whatever. So prior prior to the 1971 season, Boston Patriots uh, changed their name to the New England Patriots. That's how we know them now. Right. Um, in 1970, why don't you take this one? In 1976, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and Seattle Seahawks woo, were added net plus two. Now we're at 28 teams. Yep, yep. So um, the Bucks and the Seahawks kind of moved back and forth. So when the, when the Seahawks were originally added, they were added to the 
NFC West. NFC West. And the Bucks were in the AFC, AFC West. Yeah. And then um, at, before they finished out the decade, they realigned these teams. Um, and we added the uh, Tampa Bay Buccaneers to the NFC Central. Uh, so the Bears, Vikings, Packers, Lions, and the Seahawks were added to the AFC West. That's uh, the Raiders, Chiefs, Chargers, Broncos, and the Seahawks, of course. So. so 28 teams finished out the decade in 1979. And in the American Football Conference... The AFC East, made up of the Baltimore Colts, Miami Dolphins, New York Jets, Buffalo Bills, and New England Patriots. The AFC Central, made up of Cincinnati Bengals, Cleveland Browns, Pittsburgh Steelers, and Houston Oilers. And the AFC West, with the Oakland Raiders, Kansas City Chiefs, San Diego Chargers, Denver Broncos, and Seattle Seahawks. Yep. And the National Football Conference uh, finishes out with uh, NFC East, of course, the Cowboys, Giants, St. Louis Cardinals, Eagles, and the Washington football team. Central was the Vikings, Bears, Packers, Lions, and Tampa Bay was added there. And then finally, the NFC West, 49ers, Rams, Falcons, and Saints. All right. That is the teams, the changes, and kind of uh, it spanned throughout the decade. Um, the next phase or next uh, category we have is called changing the game, where we talk about some of the changes that were implemented for the league through that decade. So, Jeremy, why don't you lead us off? All right. So uh, my first one was in 1970, the NFL adopted rule changes that the AFL already had, uh, putting names on the back of the players' jerseys and making the scoreboard clock the official timing device of the game. Yeah, so generally speaking, um, all the the league adopted the rules specifically of the NFL, but they did keep a few of the, the aforementioned things. Right. Yeah. So they did a realignment of the leagues, as we kind of discussed just before this, to two conferences, three divisions. Um, NFL added a wild card um, to the a wild, wild card team to the playoffs along with three other division winners for the, each conference thus expanding uh, to eight team playoff all right in uh, 1972 the hash marks which anybody listening to this podcast still knows what a hash mark is on an nfl football field uh they were moved from at the time they were 40 feet apart mike which seems crazy right and they were moved into 18 and a half feet thinking behind this was that they were going to make passing much easier give the these wide receivers more room to run around uh be out wider but really what it, it had almost the uh, complete opposite effect and it made they figured out ways to run now we can run with you know send our, our half back out wide or our fullback wheel and, rounds and such, yeah, yeah all kinds of stuff and so they like that that's and that kind of coincides with, you know, 1972 was the first year or had the most rushing yards in NFL history in that year and the most 1,000-yard rushers. So I thought that was pretty interesting. So in line of, uh, of your previous comment about Monday Night Football um, and it's starting in September of 1970, um, the NFL decided to retain both uh, NBC, who was covering the AFL games, and CBS, who was covering um, – the NFL games um, and basically what they did is they divided it up so if it was an a uh, AFC matchup NBC would cover that game if it was an NFC matchup 
uh, a, uh, CBS would cover that game. Okay. It's kind of what they do now with Fox yeah, and Fox CBS. And, CBS. Um, and then the home team, if you did an interconference uh, game, the home team would determine the broadcasting team. And also in line with today, uh, ABC, which is owned by Disney, which also owns ESPN, so it's still the same kind of family, um, uh, were the ones that were broadcasting ABC. So okay. at this point, uh, by 1970, the NFL had all three major broadcasts in the United States locked up. Wow. Um yeah, that, that made me think because the other, you know, you mentioned that now that's kind of the same thing with CBS and Fox. Like CBS covers most of the AFC games, Fox the NFC games. But a few weeks ago, the Seahawks played the Packers. I use the word played lightly because they didn't really show up, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, that game was on CBS, though, and I was like, because I, I was like, look, yeah, I flipped the TV on to, to watch the game, and I'm like, why are the games not on? Why are they showing, you know, the Flexed, Cowboys maybe? game? Yeah, it was, it was very strange. But yeah, Green Bay and, and Seattle were on uh, on CBS, which I was pretty shocked by. Because, yeah, usually they're only on CBS, the Seahawks anyway, if they're playing an AFC opponent. So, I yeah, I don't know how they... I mean, if you're looking at the beginning of the season, you have two number one teams playing each other. I right, mean, maybe, two, two high-end quarterbacks. Maybe that's a Sunday night football game that they flex out. Yeah, it could have been. Who knows? Could have been. So, uh, yeah, Mike, um, back to the changes uh, in rules throughout the decade. In uh, 1972, the method of determining win-loss percentage in the standings has changed. Tie games that hadn't counted before were made an equal half win and half loss. So just for percentage points to make the standings more fair, I guess, or more representative of... It gives, you, it gives you a .5 hit for the win-loss yeah. from a percentage standpoint. Yeah. yeah. So this is one thing, 1972, um, that I didn't even think about, but uh, it makes a lot of sense as you read through it. They had to standardize the markings on the field. So apparently, like in San Diego, you would have like diamond-shaped numbers and hash marks, and you go to like Oakland or something like that, and they had like lines. The NFL said... We can't we can't do this anymore. They get their little logo in the middle, and you get your end zone. But everything else has to be standard, standard number shapes, lines, standard distances, hash marks, standard size. Everything becomes standard so that that uh, each team is playing with the same rules. And you, as you discussed earlier, it does make a difference if those hash marks are out farther or, or closer yeah. in. It does make a difference. Absolutely. Uh, so 1973, they put a jersey numbering system in place. Uh, so number one through 19 was uh, only used for quarterbacks or specialists like kickers and punters. Uh, 20 through 49 for running backs and defensive backs. 50 through 59 for centers and linebackers. 60 through 79 for defensive linemen and interior offensive linemen other than centers and 80 through 89 for wide receivers and tight ends. Although players who had been in the NFL in 1972 could continue to use their old numbers. Yeah. They were grandfathered in regardless of positions. They also at the time uh, eliminated zero, double zero, 90 and 99 as option 92, 99 that, that as options that they can't use. You, you telling me to just bring up zero and double zero. I know this is completely off subject, but it was strange to me that over the last couple of years, the Portland Trailblazers, Damian Lillard wears zero, and Carmelo Anthony was double, double zero. zero. And yeah. I was like, I've never seen that on it. You know, like there's 
because there's no difference in value of those two numbers, right? So it's just, it always threw me off. I don't know why. Um, it's obviously to identify, you know, for stat sheet. Right, um, right. Yeah, so this was such a big thing to kind of unify these numbers, unify the field, unify the numbers. They've tweaked it a little bit, but these are still the general guidelines. Obviously, they... you. People can use 90 through 99 now, you know, um, defensive linemen typically are in those high 90s. Right. But I don't see a lot of zeros or double zeros um, yeah. at this point. But they, Yeah, and then and doing away with it because now you see def- defensive ends are wearing single-digit numbers now this year. Yeah, that's that's definitely and, a new yeah, thing, yeah. Yeah, it just started again this year in 2021. So. Well, what ends up happening is over time, you teams run out of numbers to use. Teams, you know, numbers are retired. Um, they got guys that are in, you know, different hybrid positions. Um, we see, you know, we started to see it a few years ago with a lot of the receivers having uh, teen numbers. So yeah. it just kind of carries on from that. So one of the things that I saw was kind of like obvious. One of the things we, we don't see it so much today because it's such a horrible penalty um, is defensive players could no longer use leverage to block a kick. Could you imagine before this rule, just having somebody step up on the back of their, you know, line of their defensive lineman and leap up in the air to block the field goal. It seems like it's, it's a no brainer. Like right. no one's ever kicking, you know, yeah, a field no goal. Yeah. So they said, let's, we can't do that anymore, guys. We got, we can't be using each other, you know, to do this. It's not like a cheerleading pyramid. Yeah, yeah. I had a, a bunch of stuff happen in 1974, Mike. Uh, they adopted a uh, one su- sudden death overtime rule was added for preseason and regular season games. Uh, the goalposts were moved from the goal line to the end line, so the back of the end zone where they reside now still to this day. Uh, kickoffs were moved from the 40 to the 35-yard line. Uh, after missed field goals from beyond the 20, the ball was to be returned to the line of scrimmage. Uh, restrictions were placed on members of the punting team to open up return possibilities. Uh, roll blocking and cutting of wide receivers was eliminated. The extent of downfield contact a defender could have with an eligible receiver was restricted to five yards. And the penalty for offensive holding, illegal use of hands, and tripping were reduced from 15 to 10 yards. And also, the one last one, wide receivers blocking back toward the ball within three yards of the line of scrimmage were prevented from blocking below the waist. Sounds like a lot of changes during this period It's a lot of, of changes. Well, we see that it's kind of the theme. This is a longer than normal section for us for like what we've done in the previous yeah. um, decades. Yeah, there's um, way more rule changes this decade than they're than, trying to tweak the yeah, game a bit. They yeah. they recognize that the product is a little slow, and if we're trying to make this something that's exciting and popular for people to watch, and we're and our television coverage is improving, um, we have better cameras, better microphones, better players. You know, we have to try to highlight those positives. So I think these rules are all in line with that philosophy. Absolutely. So one of the things I saw, thought was interesting, um, I think you brought Deacon Jones up in the last podcast and, you know, because 
it was before sacks were uh, he coined the phrase sack first of all yeah. and it was before this sacks were it was like eight documented years. Yeah, he was playing like eight years before they even had sacks as a stat so, so because of he was such a profound defensive player um, but he would use like this vicious head slap um, on the offensive linemen so they finally outlawed that in 1977 yeah some other things from 77 that i had uh you know the like you had already mentioned the regular season was moved to 16 teams uh, with a four-game preseason and that i guess held the test of time until this this current season we're in now 2021 um defenders were permitted uh, also in 1977 sorry defenders were permitted to make contact with eligible receivers only once uh, offensive linemen were prohibited from thrusting their hands to an opponent's neck, face, or head, and wide receivers were prevented or prohibited from clipping, even in the legal clipping zone. Which I don't know what the legal clipping zone is, but they're not allowed to do that anymore. So many specific things happened. So, so all these little tweaks, like like we said. Um, so 1978 was the season where they started to really make some serious changes to uh, create more of a passing vertical uh, game, something of that little higher scoring. Um, so um, there's a ton of these little things that that really make a difference, big picture, but are kind of like not ones or they're in the weeds so much. So one of the a few that I pulled out was, and I think these are very important, Defenders are now only permitted to contact the wide receiver within five yards of the line of scrimmage. Right. We all know this inherently as a rule. He touched him after five yards. Yeah. That's, you know, Back in the day, these receivers would come off the line and just get mugged through the entire route. Hands on him. You know, there's some clips of... Uh, Atkinson of the Raiders kind of elbowing or, you know, doing a head chop to Lynn Swan. And, you know, it's just the clothesline moves. It's just it was brutal out there for a lot of those receivers. So in order to open that up, you have to start implementing these types of rules. So that was one. Um, I thought this was shocking. Pass blocking rules were expanded. So I guess prior um, the, the, the offensive linemen had to keep their hands in and their fists closed. Now they can extend their hands fully and open or extend their arms fully and open up their hands. And this is to better facilitate pass blocking where you have to kind of do that shuffle and keep the player outside versus pushing and, you know, trying to force through the line to create holes. So it's a whole different type of, uh, blocking that was put in place here, um, presumably to increase the passing offense yeah and then i you know that those are all yeah vital vitally important rules that we we know today so um in in 1979 the the nfl continued to put some emphasis on player safety uh the changes included prohibiting players on the receiving team from blocking below the waist during kickoffs punts and field goal attempts Uh, prohibited the wearing of torn or altered equipment and exposed pads that could be hazardous. Thanks, Earl Campbell. (laughs) Uh, Extended the zone in which there could be no crackback blocks and instructed officials to quickly whistle plays dead after a quarterback was clearly in the grasp of a tackler, which we know well today as well. So, So, yeah, that's that's my last one. 
Yeah, so we all know the Holy Roller, Stabler, uh, ball fumbles forward and kind of rolls or touched by a couple of Raiders into the end zone. They recover it, touchdown. So after that incident, and we'll see this throughout this entire season, is like there'll be a major incident that will cause a significant rule change. Yeah. So it basically, in the last two minutes of the game, if you, you can't fumble forward. So if you recovered in the end zone and it's not recovered by the person who actually fumbled the ball, it has to go back to the spot of the fumble. So pretty, pretty straightforward. So um, that's the end of changing the game for the 1970s, right? right? Let's get to this fantasy draft. All right. This is what I want. I'm, I'm ready I'm to get sure back. I'm not sure you in, want any part of this. I'm ready to get back we'll in the winning column okay. here. All right. So you were up this, this episode. Uh, first pick quarterbacks. Who do you got? Um, I'm going to go with the Blonde Bomber, the self-proclaimed Blonde Bomber, I guess. <laughs> Terry Bradshaw, uh, Pittsburgh Steelers, 1977 to 79. Uh, he had a little over 9,100 yards passing, 71 passing touchdowns, 347 rushing yards, and four rushing touchdowns to go along with four Super Bowl wins. That four Super Bowl wins is damned impressive for sure yeah but we're not talking about super bowl wins for this we're talking about yards and touchdowns so i'm gonna take True. roger staubach i like he, it he uh 9200 yards passing uh he had 75 passing tds another 600 in rushing trying to avoid getting uh hammered and then uh, another four uh rushing tds for him um so i saw a crazy stat about roger staubach last night um, on watching the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and Tom Brady play the New York Giants. And the stat was showing how many career touchdown passes. It was showing some of the all-time greats. Bart Starr had like 146. Uh, Roger Staubach had 154 career touchdowns. Tom Brady had 155. And I'm just like, oh. And I'm like reading closer on the details. Since he's 40, Tom Brady has more passing touchdowns than Roger Staubach had in his entire career. <laughs> that is an amazing That's stat. crazy to me. I was going to say, it's like more like 400, <laughs> yeah, 508 or something. What are we doing? <laughs> yeah, I was like, wait a minute. I'm like, I was like, what about how I couldn't read the, uh, yeah, I, was, I wasn't paying that close of attention. And then I kind of focused on, I'm like, what the, since he's 40, he has more passing touchdowns. God bless him. Yeah. All right, so who is your second quarterback? My second quarterback is Fran Tarkenton of the Minnesota Vikings. From uh, I had him for 1975, 76, and 78. He had 9,400 passing yards and 67 passing touchdowns, uh, 140 yards rushing, and four more touchdowns in those three years. He was a touchdown machine, and let's not forget when he ended his career, he led the league in all-purpose all, yards. All-purpose all yards or I believe, passing? I believe it was all-purpose yards. Okay, stack guy, we're going to get you yeah, on Yeah, we got to get stack guy on it. Definitely set the, you know, had the most passing yards okay. in a career by the time he ended. And he, I, I'm not. He's the one overtook. He's I, the one that overtook John, Johnny Unitas. We know, yep, we remember that. All right, cool. He's the guy that I forgot in between him and Dan Marino. So, yeah. I am going to give you my next pick, and then from that point, I want to like take a moment to discuss some of my observations yeah. for this quarterback position from the Let's 70s. Do it. All right, so my next pick, uh, Ken Anderson 
Um, we're going to take him from 73 to 75. Everyone's like, who? Yeah, Cincinnati Bengals. Um, like looking at his numbers, he's pretty darn good um, over that course of his career. But those three years, he threw for 8,200 yards, uh, 57 passing TDs, another 600 in rushing and four TDs. So and one of the things I liked about him is he had uh, low interception rates as well. So pretty accurate. Um, yeah. Ken Anderson, Cincinnati Bengals. Good pick. Good pick. All, All right. right so, let's hear your breakdown of these quarterbacks. All right. So I was kind of analyzing. I my I expected the 1970s quarterback to take a big jump from uh, the 1960s, um, and it didn't really happen. And I guess in retrospect, it was because they didn't really start opening those offenses up till uh, significantly later in the decade. Um, but I noticed that a lot of the Hall of Fame quarterbacks that we know uh, are relatively, uh, when compared to players now, a, a, a bit pedestrian, if you will. Well, yeah, I mean, you, you had the, the choice of everybody but Terry Bradshaw and you took Roger Staubach, who Tom Brady's thrown for more touchdowns since he's 40 years old. So That's right. Your yeah. story just sums it up yeah. in, in very well. So um, I looked at, and what I, I found, like a lot of these players would regularly throw under um, 60%. Like Terry Bradshaw, for example, is like 42, 44, or I'm sorry, 52, 54% completion in that range, like year over year. Uh, And I I found like these players that once they get to like that 60% completion rate, you would really see a significant jump. It would be these guys that were approaching upper 3,000 yards, so 37, 38, 4,000 yards, you'd see like these significant jumps. And I guess it makes sense. You are completing more passes, but they were completing more passes and it was turning to like disproportionate amount of yards and touchdowns and less uh, interceptions. So I thought that was interesting. So just 60% was the line of demarcation for quarterbacks of the 70s. Pretty interesting. Um, And I did also notice that there was a significant increase starting in 1979, uh, really, um, for yards and TDs for upper-level quarterbacks. It it just skyrocketed. And the case study for this is Dan Fouts. So he's averaging about 1,500 yards, um, middle of the road, not even kind of at the bottom of some of these not in the conversation of a Terry Bradshaw. Oh, he's an Oregon duck. You can't expect. Uh, never mind. All right. Go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. We got to put that away for a minute. Um, <laughs> so he's in 1,500 yards from 1973 to 1977 on average. He has a jump when these rules kind of take place to 3,000 yards 1978 season. But when he hits that 1979, he rattles off three straight 4,000-yard seasons. So he has 4,082 and 79, 47, 15, and 80, and in 81, 4,802 yards. It was crazy to see those numbers just skyrocket. And I think for that probably four to five, well, it's really a four-year span, Dan Fouts looked like the best quarterback in the league in the, in the, at the end of this. So are you giving us a hint on who you're taking with the first quarterback pick for the 80s? Um, he made the list of ones that I had to calculate, but um, because he straddles that 70, 80, uh, we had to draw the line. So we yeah. draw the line. We go from the, the, 1980 to the aught to the nine in a given decade. And right. because he straddles, 
you know, from the 79 into 80, um, his numbers aren't that good. If he uh, did it on 80, 81, 82, he's gotcha. probably one of the best on the list. But gotcha. So that's our, my interesting observations that I made for uh, quarterbacks for the 70s. So let's get back to the draft. I have the first running back, don't I? You do. Okay, so let me... So I'll give you a guess. What do you think? And it's not even close. Who Who's the best in the 70s? Earl Campbell? No. O.J. Simpson. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Torched everyone. I'm, I'm glad that you were the one that got to choose O.J. Simpson. Yeah, I mean... I get he it. He murdered the competition, bro. Oh, boy. <laughs> oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Let's hear the stats. Because he did. Yeah, he was a... I mean, he was a... Uh... Well, like we mentioned earlier, he was the first to get 2,000 yards in a season. So in 1973 season, you got 2,003 yards. I definitely chose that as one of my seasons. Um, he also got 1,875 and another 15 in 76. Finished those three years uh, over 5,300 yards, 36 uh, touchdowns. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, 44 total touchdowns. So okay. he was a beast. I'll say his total fantasy points for those four days or those three years, um, 831. Just just slaughtered every other wow. running back. So good luck. Well, I'm glad you used the word slaughter there, but uh, uh, my. My first running back pick uh, is going to be Sweetness, Walter Payton. I you know you couldn't really go anywhere else. Chicago Bears, seventy six, seventy seven, seventy nine. He had four thousand eight hundred fifty rushing yards, forty one rushing touchdowns, a little over seven hundred receiving yards, and two more touchdowns. And he actually had fifty four passing yards and a touchdown pass. I think it's weird. Like for that three-year period, um, 700 yards, only two touchdowns. I, I mean, he must have been just the checkdown. Yeah. You know, in those moments where they were like not not in the red zone, right. he wasn't part of that. I guess if you have Walter Payton and you're in in the red zone, you're not going to throw it to him, right? Right. You're just going to hand it off. All right, that's a really good pick. Definitely the second best of that decade. Yeah. Uh, my second pick for running back is Chuck Foreman. Now, I didn't really know who this person was, um, not on my radar as a, as a fan um, at any point, but Chuck Foreman from 75 to 77. He had um, 3,300 yards rushing, another 16 or so receiving, and a total of, what was this, 45 touchdowns over those three years. Well, that's a lot of touchdowns. With Chuck Foreman, touchdown machine, yeah. I kind of stumbled across, you know. I don't, I don't know how I found him, but that's, I'm glad yeah, I did. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Nice pick. Uh, my next uh, running back selection was Franco Harris, Pittsburgh Steelers, uh, 75, 76, and 79. Like, this was kind of weird because, um, you know, Earl Campbell only had two really solid years in the 70s, and the rest of his damage was done in the 80s, so... It was either grab Earl Campbell and his two monster 70s years or, you know, go with right. Franco Harris. So I took Franco Harris. He had 3,500, a little over 3,500 yards rushing, 35 touchdowns, and another 650-plus yards receiving and two more touchdowns. When I was plugging his stats into uh, my calculator here, um, I was really shocked at, at how 
uh, good he was. Like he he was never a player that jumped out to me like in highlights or anything. There isn't a lot of like you, you watch Walter Payton, he's running over people. You watch Earl Campbell, he's getting his shirt ripped. You right. know things like that. You don't see a lot. You see Franco Harris, he's catching a phantom ball that you can't see. <laughs> so um, it's unfortunate. That I think you know he's in the Hall of Fame, so somebody does appreciate what he's um, he's done in his career. But from my perspective, I had no idea. So yeah, yeah much better player than I had thought. So. Good on you, Franco. Yeah. All right, so we're up to receivers now, right? Yeah, and that's me. Uh, first pick of receivers. I went with Cliff Branch from the Oakland Raiders, 74 through 76. He had 3,100 yards receiving and 34 touchdowns. Yeah, he was by far the best on the list. That was a That's a great pick. So Which, he, And he's kind of under, I mean, you don't really – I've never. I had never heard of him before I started – diving into you know the best receivers of the of the 70s that was that was pretty interesting yeah um yeah so there weren't it wasn't a deep class unfortunately receivers in the 70s um again a lot of them like the court like a lot of the quarterback names that we know uh the receivers were uh also relatively pedestrian but a couple of uh non-pedestrian ones that i have uh, well the first one was steve largent uh, we took 77, 78, 79. Seattle Seahawk, originally uh, drafted by the Oilers and then traded to us, thank gosh. And mm-hmm. uh, he had a whopping 3,000 yards uh, through that period of time, 27 touchdowns. Running some of the, the crispest routes I've ever seen. Uh, kind of Allworth-esque. Um, really tough guy, too. Yeah, hard to believe that the Oilers gave up on him after one year. I think he was drafted in 76, and they shipped him over the same day. I don't oh. think he ever played a down oh, he for never, the Oilers. Oh, no. maybe I'm thinking of somebody else. Okay, anyway, stat guy is uh, going to definitely give me some give me the business uh, next week. <laughs> My next uh, wide receiver was Harold Jackson, and uh, Harold played for the Eagles, the Rams, and the Patriots in the three years that I took him, which were 72, 73, and 79. Uh, he had 2,900 yards receiving and 24 touchdowns over those three years. And, uh, you know, like Mike mentioned, it was a very pedestrian group of wide receivers from this decade. Indeed, indeed. Now, I also selected a former Philadelphia Eagle, Harold Carmichael. Another, again, blind spot. I didn't really know um, this particular player, uh, but he was very close. He actually. In the three years that I selected, 73, 78, and 79, he actually had more receiving yards than Largent um, and more touchdowns. So um, he's right on that level. So Harold Carmichael was my um, second pick for wide receiver. All right, and then All right, we go to flex. We go to up. flex. So my first flex pick um, – Obviously, we pick a lot of running backs at this position, um, right. but we can select receivers and tight ends if we want to. Um, but I, I expect to see maybe we'll get some receivers in there as we get into the 90s and the 2000s. But yeah. at the moment, it's a running back, and his name is Floyd Little, Denver Broncos. I selected 71 through 73. He had um, a passing touchdown during that period of time, 3,000 yards rushing, and another thousand receiving with a total of uh, 32 touchdowns. Nice, nice. Um, 
All right, Mike. Uh, my first flex selection is going to be Lydell Mitchell from the Baltimore Colts. I had him for 1975 through 1977. And this, you know, I know when we were going back and forth doing our draft earlier this week, you texted me and were like, great, fine. So that always puts me in a good mood. Uh, he, you know, Lydell Mitchell was, it was really kind of a, a hidden gem. He, I mean, he had 3,500 yards rushing over those three years and 19 touchdowns and added in another, oh, 1,700 yards receiving and 11 more touchdowns. I mean, this guy was, was definitely a do-it-all, uh, do-it-all back in the 1970s. I mean, a little Marshall Falk-esque to him there. Yeah, I had no idea that he existed. Um, Neither did I, trust me. <laughs> and honestly, he was, if I was looking at, I'm just quickly taking a look at the scores, he is, he's your flex, and he has the third most fantasy points between our flex and running back team. He's got 679 points for the, the years that you selected. So, man, that was an amazing find. I, I wish I would have, I wish I would have seen him. Was he on your list? He wasn't even on the list, Woo. so I had to evaluate my list. So, well, well hopefully <laughs> it gets better as we go, but I'm go. glad you found it. Yep, yep. All right, you're up. So my second um, pick for flex is Tony Dorsett. Great pick. Yeah, 77 through 79, former Pitt Panther. I believe won a national championship with them. Okay. Um, playing with the Dallas Cowboys, we have uh, 3,500 rushing yards, uh, 25 rushing TDs, another thousand receiving, and uh, four um, additional touchdowns there. So, Tony Dorsett. Good, good man. And my uh, next pick was John Riggins uh, for 75, 78, and 79. One of those years, he was with the New York Jets, and the other two, obviously, with the Washington Football Team, where everybody remembers him from. Uh, 3,000, little over 3,000 yards rushing and 22 rushing touchdowns threw in an extra 800 a little over 800 yards receiving and four more touchdowns over those three years yeah so i think like franco harris riggins was a bit of a blind spot for me i knew of him kind of like that bruising runner um he was in a couple of super bowls um but didn't really uh, know what his numbers were but they're pretty damn impressive yeah, not, not bad not yeah. bad not not tony dorsett but not bad um, he actually got more fantasy points than Tony Dorsett. So really? 521.7, I believe, was him. And to- oh, I'm sorry, you're right. 565 for Tony. So very close, though. Yeah, I mean, not too far off. All right. Uh, so am I up for uh, tight end here? Yeah. No, no, it's you're up for tight yeah, end. Yeah, I'm up for tight end. Sorry. Uh, yeah. So tight end. My first selection was Dave Casper from the Oakland Raiders. I wanted from that one. Seventy six to seventy eight. Uh, he had twenty two hundred plus receiving yards and twenty four touchdowns. I mean, he. I think I'm pretty sure he had the best kind of combination of yards and and touchdowns there. So. Yeah, you want to talk about pedestrian. Look at tight ends in the 70s. Really I mean, bad. it's really fun, hard to find somebody with a 1,000-yard season. Um, and I'm not sure that is much better nowadays, but it, it, I guess it feels like it is. Like, they have more plays. There's more high-end guys, like Darren Waller. I mean, well, there's the guys that are more like wide receivers than tight ends, right? Right. So they, they're more of the game plan than they ever used to be, of course. Yeah. But yeah. yeah, I mean, I saw them run a... Uh, you see tight ends running end-arounds way more now, or 
um, little uh, little shovel. I just saw uh, Patrick Mahomes throw a shovel pass up the middle to Travis Kelsey yep. that he took for like 20 yards and a touchdown. So, um, yeah, it's it's interesting kind of the progression of that. Yeah, speaking of blind spots, tight end was a huge one for me in the me 70s. Me too. I, I, no didn't, idea. I didn't even know any. Yeah, I didn't know any of Casper guys. is a name I recognized right off the bat. Yeah, I, but I, I think that's where name, but I that, think that's where it ended. Yeah. Because a lot of the ones that I knew, the, the Callan Winslows and Ozzie Newsoms, didn't really do their damage till the 80s. Exactly. I was just going to mention that too, yeah. So my first pick for tight end was Rick Rich Caster. Rich Caster. We have um, 2,300 yards, 21 touchdowns. He was actually pretty prolific um, scoring, so pretty good. That was my uh, – I had him for 72, 74, 75. Rich Caster. All right. Uh, my next tight end selection was Billy Joe Dupree from the Dallas Cowboys. Uh, between 74 – I had him for 74, 76, and 78. Uh, he had 1,600-plus receiving yards and 15 touchdowns. Also sprinkled in about 100 yards, a little over 100 yards rushing. So I'll take those 10 points. Yeah, it's always nice to get the, the rushing yards from some of these guys. So my uh, final pick at tight end, um, wow, hopefully I can say this, Ted Qualick. Uh, he <laughs> he uh, had 2,000 yards in those three years, uh, 71 through 73, uh, 19 touchdowns, another um, 110 rushing so Ted Qualick uh yeah and so you're up first on our kicker and uh so this will wrap this up and we'll get on to our winners and losers yeah yes so uh my first pick or my pick for the kicker uh is David Ray he had uh 354 special teams points in uh, 1970 72 and 73 and what team did he play for uh he was a ram Okay. Of Los Angeles. Los Angeles. All right. I like um, to say it like Jerry Jones. Yeah. Uh, my kicker was Jan Stenerud, and I'm I'm butchering his name completely from the Kansas City Chiefs. Uh, I had him from 1970 to 72. He had 77 field goals made and 90 extra points across those three years, and he didn't miss any extra points. Missed a lot of field goals, not a lot of extra points. So that's, that's good. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I noticed like when we jumped into the 70s and we started to get specialty kickers that the names became a little bit more like Scandinavian and like <laughs> like Eastern Bloc, like Hungarian, like Gogolak and Yepremian. Yeah. Right. It's interesting. Like a lot of these soccer style kickers kind of came from, uh, I, I would presume, a more of a soccer background. Gotcha. Yep. All right. So that is the conclusion of the 1970 fantasy draft. And where uh, are we at points wise? Oh, that's right. Let's get that up and running here. So, uh, drum roll. You, Jeremy, have a total fan point of 5,518. That does not sound good. And I, on the other hand, have a total of 5,800. And nine. We're all tied up. Yep, two and two. All right. Decades. All right. And hopefully, I have something. Man. I have some stuff up my sleeves for the 1980 draft. Uh, oh gosh, I but, hope not. 
All right, well, let's go on to the winners and the losers of the decade. Yeah, the final category before we get to uh, crowning the, the dynasty of the decade, uh, winners and losers. So uh, my first one was offense. The NFL was listening. Uh, they made several rule changes um, to enhance uh, offensive performance. So, And I think they made the game better. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I agree. And kind of in line with that, one of my winners of the decade was wide receivers because the rules started preventing defensive backs from touching them past five yards. And, you know, it's kind of let the let the fastest. A lot of times the wide receivers were the fastest player on the field. So they let them kind of run free and, and start collecting some of those uh, big plays down through the decade there, you know, at the, especially at the end of the decade, as we talked about with Dan Fouts and how the the numbers really jumped there at the end of the decade after after the uh, those rules were put in place. Yeah, you have to let the, the receivers run free. You can't poach them from the back of the train. So you just let them right. just let them run. <laughs> um, to that point, I had running backs, and not necessarily because this was like massive running back numbers, but. Uh, for me, the 70s really brought those big-name players. OJ at the time, Walter Payton for me was my first kind of favorite player. Yeah. Uh, Earl Campbell, um, a lot of these guys kind of started that big-name running back that we would see in later decades. So Right, had, and you know, you, talk, they, you think about it, at that time they thought you needed – the big name running back or the you needed like the best running back in the league and you'd keep paying him and today it's like you're lucky if he has a running back if you get a second contract and it's just it's crazy I mean I guess everybody's bigger stronger and faster now too so guys get hurt way easier than or way more than they did back then anyway and maybe guys back then had to play through the you know through the pain a little more probably unsafely getting injections and whatnot but um yeah i thought you know it's interesting because now i think they switched from it switched from a, a running back dominate you know dominating running back to a dominating offensive line that really i, I think the f- switch got flipped on that between the 70s and now in, in present day football so. well also think about it you have much more vertical offense receivers tight ends going out there the defense has to guard those players. They can't sit in the box right. and wait for Walter Payton. And I think that ultimately helped. Um, we, we could see the fruits of that labor uh, start to bear in, in the 70s. I also yeah. think that the increased uh, popularity of American football through the 60s um, kind of hit that pipeline. Uh, we had obviously the AFL and the NFL we had 28 teams or 26 teams at the time and different leagues out there. Um, so college players kind of were entering into that pipeline. And I think we have that different style of offense was taken. You know, we have these players that um, flash a little bit more. The college game is usually customized in a lot of ways for the, for the people that they have. And, and any good coach in the NFL is just going to look at what they're doing in college and try to like figure out a way to utilize the talent that's there. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. So I had the AFC, and we talked about this earlier, 
But the former AFL teams, along with the Colts and Steelers, they absolutely destroy the NFC, the NFL's original teams, and Super Bowl wins for the decade. They just... Yeah. And it's, like I said, it's kind of uh, um, stacked, you know, because they did bring... Uh, five of the winners in that decade were actually originally in the NFL, but let's say right. AFC dominates. Yeah, 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 you know, and that's yeah, that that's what I was excited about that until I realized that the that, that pretty much it was all old NFL teams, but they kept you know I mean they had to adapt and and yeah it's it's the AFC definitely showed their dominance in the seventies. Uh, my so here's my hot take. Okay, Mike. My winner, one of my winners, is the Pittsburgh Steelers. We all know they were one of the best teams of the of the decade, regardless. But here's my hot take: the lack of instant replay in the NFL in the '70s basically contributed to the Steelers dynasty. Uh, Their 1970s were bookended by two plays that it would have more than likely been overturned with replay. So the Immaculate Reception in 1972, which we all know, everybody's seen the video, uh, it, it sure looks like that ball hits the the Steelers player, which would have been double-touching at the very least. Regard, and there's the clip. There's all these different things that happened uh, in the play as it as it unfolds. And but in ni- the the play I did not know about was in the 1979 AFC Championship game against the Houston Oilers. A, pa- a pass from Dan Pastorini to Mike Renfro was called incomplete in the corner of the end zone. But he clearly like I, I watched the video like six times. Clearly both of his feet get down in the end zone. Oilers would have won the game. Steelers, I mean, the Steelers essentially don't win two, two Super Bowls if those plays are are uh, able to be looked at with instant replay. And actually, the one in '79 was the catalyst for eventually. I think in 1984 they finally put instant replay uh, into the game. A test pilot, or, yeah. that lasted for just a little bit. But yeah, right. and then you know what? Do you know what the play was that got? Instant replay put back the in. The phantom touch, touchdown by Vinny Testaverde versus the, the Seahawks. Yes. In the playoff was. game. Oh, no. It was a regular it, season it game, but the go, winner, yeah, winner we goes. Yeah, would have gone to the playoffs yeah. if we would have won. So are we uh, Seahawks, but you know what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I thought – I think the, the Steelers – I mean, because what are the Steelers if they only win two championships in the 70s? We can discuss that in a second, yeah. but I think it makes um, – the decision that we came up with a little easier to stomach. All right. So um, I also had Al Davis as uh, a winner. Um, He's going to be a theme for much of probably the next two, maybe two and a half episodes. I think some of the stuff that he did in fighting with the, uh, the NFL and court cases and things like that, even fighting with Pittsburgh um, will, will end up, um, being a big part of our, our discussion. So in, in, in the context of the 1970s, he did, despite all of the infighting and the vitriol that he had with the uh, NFL and particularly Pete Rozelle, he was able to win his first Super Bowl and furthered his commitment to es- uh, excellence. So he won the 19, uh, 1976 Super Bowl. All right. So uh, any other winners uh, for you, Jeremy? Nope. That, that's all for me. All right. Let's wrap this uh, categories up 
up with our losers. So my first loser is defensive backs. Um, they were the single largest position group that was affected by the rule changes. They're not allowed to manhandle offensive players anymore. So it, they really had to kind of like, hey, we can't do this. We have to quickly adapt. And I think probably ended up with the explosion in the 80s with was defenses trying to figure that out. Yeah, that, that's a great one for sure. Uh, you know, my loser, the only loser I had for the for the decade was the Los Angeles Rams. And I chose them. They're, they were coached at the time by um, the first coach I knew as coach of the Seahawks, uh, Chuck Knox. And they made the playoffs. They I'm sorry. Yeah, they, they won the NFC West seven times in the 70s. But every time they made it to the NFC Championship game, they ran into the Minnesota Vikings who I guess could also be considered a loser too, but I just felt like the Rams were more of a loser and aren't. it's not appreciated as much because they never, I mean, the, the, the Vikings, you know, went to the Super Bowl three times in the 70s and lost all three times. You know, everybody knows the story that they've been to the Super Bowl four times and never won, all that sort of stuff. But I just felt like the Rams and Chuck Knox could never get over the hump and the Vikings were always like the roadblock in their way. Maybe they would have lost those Super Bowls as well, but they didn't even get the chance to, you know, chance to play in those. So I, you know, I kind of felt bad for them, and I'm sentimental to Chuck Knox, R.I.P. There you go. Now I will say as well is at the end of um, the at the end of the '79 season, uh, they moved out of the L.A. Coliseum and they moved to Orange County. Right. Got a new stadium out in uh, Anaheim, and we'll have more about that in the next episode as well because yes, it, it, all that kind of changes leads to kind of pissing off Al Davis and what, <laughs> what's soon to come. Yeah. So my final loser, uh, bear with me here because it's a, it's a bit of a stretch. It goes out, but I, yeah. I, I just follow my logic here. I'm, I'm with you. So Baltimore and Colts fans. So they kick off the decade with a Super Bowl win. Don Shula leaves after uh, um, just before the 1970 season to coach the Miami Dolphins. All right, so they lose a Hall of Fame coach. 1972, you know, uh, Don Shula goes on to win back-to-back Super Bowls. So he goes to three Super Bowls. They lose the first. And then back-to-back with the undefeated year in 72. Um, Also in 72, there's a really weird ownership exchange where Robert Ursay and Willard Keeland by the Los Angeles Rams, which I didn't know about, from the estate of Dan Reeves. Not the NFL or the Hall of Fame player and coach Dan Reeves, but the owner of the Rams, uh, Dan Reeves. Um, they then transfer the ownership to Carol Rosenblum in exchange for the Baltimore Colts. So they go by the Rams because this guy is passed and, and it's up for sale. And then they take that asset and give it to this Rosenblum guy so that they can own the Colts. That's the summary there. So now the Colts have Robert Ursay in their life. And, you know, I told I mentioned watch the documentary or the 30 for 30 documentary on Al Davis versus the NFL. Right. Watch a little. I was also watching uh, Marino to Elway Ooh, that's or Elway to, Elway to Marino, the 30 yeah, for 30. It's yeah. a good one. He is a major player in that. And just you'll understand if you watch that, you'll understand why Robert Ursay was... And this is uh, Robert Ursay is cocaine Jim Jim Ursay's dad, right? Correct. The current owner. Correct. So this basically opened the door for Ursay to botch the 83 draft, which they picked John Elway and then ended up trading him for Chris Hinton, 
um, a 2000 or a 2000 a 1984 first round pick and a backup quarterback that's all the the colts got for this what did the do you know what the pick turned into the 84 first round pick i don't that's a great question stat guy will, stat guy will definitely figure one. that out and this all eventually led in 1984 to the baltimore colts relocating to indianapolis With the mayflower trucks in the middle of the night yeah so they win a championship they lose a coach they get a bumbling owner who then decides to take one of the most important assets and then one of the most important drafts in the history of the NFL botches that completely and then eventually rips the heart out of the Baltimore fans and moves the team to Indianapolis. That's you know I'm so happy for the Baltimore fans they got a good team in the Ravens that seems to be well run. Yes, it was. And unfortunately it wasn't well run when they were in Cleveland. Mm-hmm. Um so I'm I can't be mad at it. You, right. Ownership does matter. Yeah, yeah. I hate and as a as a Seattle Sonics fan, you as a Cleveland Browns fan, I'm sure it's like I, it drives me crazy to see cities lose teams, but you know it happens, I guess. For the record, I'm also a Sonics fan. Yeah, I, my bad. I'm not trying to take it away from you. <laughs> All right, so uh, that's it for the winners and losers. Our final category. Um, now it is time to have a discussion about who won the decade. So I, there's a lot of trepidation here. <laughs> I, I did a lot of soul searching. So I'm just going to say the winners and we can talk about it. Okay. Okay. Let's go. So who I have is the winner based on the calculations that we've put in place. It's the Dallas Cowboys. They have a dynasty score of 50. They went 105 and 39 for the decade. They made the playoffs nine times, conference championship five times. So they went to five Super Bowls in seven appearances, and they are two-time champions, uh, 1971 and 77, the only NFC team to win a Super Bowl the entire decade. Yeah, I mean, it's they were consistent. They were one of – I mean, yeah, you, you can't – all those playoff berths really – I mean, that's what puts them over the top and the conference and going to the Super Bowl. The Super, so going to the Super Bowl five times is really what seals the deal. Even yeah, with the loss, we do have um, some emphasis put on that particular game. So the conference championships obviously are scored and the, the Super Bowl appearances and victories are scored. Um, so I think so, yeah. you add that all up, it's very close. So, yeah, and so our runner-up for that decade, obviously, the, yeah, the, the aforementioned Pittsburgh Steelers. Uh, they had a dynasty by decade score of forty-four. Uh, they were ninety-nine, forty-four, and one in the decade. They made the playoffs eight times, conference champions four times in six appearances. Uh, world champions four times back to back 74 75 and 78 79 and they were also 2 and 0 against the Cowboys in the Super Bowl which yeah I thought I needed puts... to kind of lay it all out there so here's the thing that I have the, the problem that I have with this is I can't ignore four Super Bowls in the decade it's it hasn't been it won't happen until I mean I got to check to see if the Patriots rattled that off in a decade but it's it's a crazy feat. They won more Super Bowls. But I think one of the things that I wanted to try to do with this this calculation that I have was try to eliminate the idea of just everything is a Super Bowl win. Like look at 
all of the other stats that a team has to really try to figure out who is the best. And I think that's where this calculation um, really, everything else you could predict, we were gonna, the dynasty of a particular decade, you could, it's almost predictable. And it will be predictable in, in, in further decades, but this one was one of those ones. You know, if if I hadn't come up with those two dynasty-defining moments for the Steelers in 72 and 79, I think I would probably ride way harder for the Steelers. That the Steelers should be the champions. But... So here's my I, dilemma. Yeah, go ahead. Here's my dilemma. I have to ride... My, my choices are ride with the with the formula and present the results right the other option is override the formula when i am not comfortable with the results and then add emotion to it so i decided that option one was the best route have the formula i'll put it out there and we can discuss it other people can discuss it and we can go from there yeah i you know Send us an email, drop us a line, line to gain show at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you guys because, yeah, this is a tough one. I, it really is. But I have a hard time rooting for anything Steelers myself as a Seahawks fan. And I know I bring up my Seahawks fandom quite a bit, but it's tough. So I'm, I'm good with the Cowboys. I lived in Dallas um, through the three Super Bowls in the 90s. Um, Dallas fans are just the worst insufferable <laughs> um oh, and i'm not a huge fan of the pittsburgh steelers either so it bring brings me no joy either way okay to um, so pick one or the you're other very you know you're you're it's the formula yeah for this pit it, for this it was the formula yeah you're absolutely neutral so i like that um you know, and then, yeah, let's hop into our, our honorable mentions here, too, because I think these are two great ones. Yeah, so this is probably more of my favorite um, of this part. So the honorable mention, obviously, is, uh, well, maybe not obviously to everyone else, but is the Miami Dolphins. They had a dynasty score of 30. They went 104-39-1 for the decade. So that's right up there with Dallas. Um, they made the playoff seven times conference championship three times and, and won the world championship twice and back-to-back Super Bowls in 72-73. Of course, they had the undefeated season in 1972. And uh, I don't know, three straight Super Bowls, two wins, back-to-back. Um, it's pretty impressive. You know, I love that I love that uh, Mercury Morris and, uh, and Larry Zonka and these guys still pop champagne you know, as old as they are. They're still getting around every time the the last team of the was it the Cardinals this year? Yeah, yeah. yeah, The Cardinals were the last undefeated team. As soon as they go down, at least it's getting earlier in the season every year for them. It seems like there's not. You know, I remember growing up, it seemed like there was always one team that would take an undefeated streak. You know, ten, twelve games into the season before losing, even even further sometimes. Well, Uh, to take this to basketball for just a second, you know, Michael. Um, after he left to play baseball, was looking at uh, expansion teams coming into the NBA and going, all right, this is going to be a talent uh, boon, right? There's not going to be a lot of teams are going to be spread thin. Yeah. So it's time for me to get back in and 
give this another this thing a shot. So I think you can see um, this type of behavior also in in the NFL. They expanded quite a bit over you know the late seventies through um, what two thousand two. They added the Houston Texans. Yeah. So that's thirty years of relatively um, constant. Uh, expansion teams moving around and all sorts of other stuff so i think that creates like those little pockets and it takes time so you get these the these other teams that come in like san francisco 49ers actually i forgot to mention they're another uh team that won four super bowls in a decade so they hit the ground running like when there's a uh, an expansion and you know yeah Well, and our other honorable mention team of the decade was the Oakland Raiders. Uh, They had a dynasty by decade score of 25. Their record for the decade was 138 and 6. 100 wins, 38 losses, 6 ties. Made the playoffs 6 times. Conference champion 1 time in 6 appearances. NFL champion 1 time in 1976. And uh, an interesting nugget was that uh, the win forced Pete Rizal to acknowledge the Raiders and Al Davis, which he was not a fan of doing. So yeah, so they they still do it for the I, I believe for the most part, but the the commissioner will hand over the Lombardi Trophy to the owner, you know, right. the the coach, and usually a star player. They all get to kind of touch it and have that uh, speech. Um, but yeah, Pete Rozelle, despite all of the stuff that over the last decade that he had been through with Al, he was forced to kind of go up there suck it up and uh, hand hand the raiders the trophy the lombardi trophy so yeah i love it that was yeah that was a no that was that must have been uh to be a fly on the wall there and watching that that whole thing happen must have been very interesting so uh, it gets worse it, oh, it, gets, it gets worse in worse. the 80s more to come it's a lot worse before it gets better that's for sure <laughs> so yeah anyway everybody you know please listen like rate review you know send us uh, an angry email if you think uh think we're ripping off the pittsburgh steelers here uh we'd love to hear some feedback so uh yeah let us know what you think and we will be back next week with another uh another amazing episode of the 1980s this time so just win baby all right